Welcome to another episode of the Talk About AI podcast, a podcast about AI where we go beyond the buzzwords. The guest of this episode is Amr Mohammed, a person who is often portrayed as an AI genius in the Swedish media. He has been working with digitalization and AI at the shipping giant Stena and is currently the chief digital officer at the grocery store giant Coop Sweden, with a revenue of almost 30 billion Swedish krona. And a fun fact, he has been ranked number 11 in World of Warcraft back in the days. Given Amr's role as the chief digital officer, we delve into the topic of digitalization and how that relates to AI. He has implemented chatbots at both Stena and Coop, so we discuss what chatbots actually are and their limitations. We also discuss how one goes about to transform big traditional companies to become more digital and data-driven. And of course, we talk about the future of grocery shopping. What does the future look like and how does the physical store relate to the e-commerce store? These and many more topics are being discussed. For more information about the podcast, please visit talkaboutai.com. And once again, warm welcome to the Talk About AI podcast. Welcome, Amr Mohammed, to the Talk About AI podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Very fine to be here. How are you today? I'm good. I'm good, despite the corona panic. Yeah. <laughs> I had a couple of podcast recordings next week yeah. from international guests that yeah. are all cancelled. Oh, I okay. woke up to the emails, yeah. but it was uh, bad news yesterday, shit. right? Yeah, yeah. Well, glad that you at least made it here. Mm, finally. You're commonly described in the Swedish media mm -hmm. as an AI genius. Yeah, that's totally wrong, but okay, <laughs> I'll take it. Yeah, at, <laughs> at least you can read about yourself as that, right? Yeah. <laughs> so what's your background and how did you become this AI genius? What's my background? So my background is actually that I'm a nerd. I'm a tech nerd. Uh, so I've been a programmer since I was uh, 14. And I don't know, you don't look, how old are you? I'm 25. 25, okay, maybe you're not old enough. But um, So back in the days, we couldn't just double click on an icon and a game would start. We had to make sure there is enough memory on the computer to run the game. So there are these two files if you if you had MS-DOS, uh, Microsoft uh, Operating System. There are these two files that every computer runs when it starts. It's called autexabat and configsys. And uh, you can go in there and edit those files to make sure that some processes doesn't start when the computer starts. Yeah. Uh, in that way, you release memory. So that's how it all started. And then I realized that, hmm, this makes me feel like a hacker. What else mm -hmm. can I do? And that led me into the programming uh, path. But I've never been, I'm not a genius, you know. I'm, I've never been the, the best programmer in the world. Uh, I remember very often in my startups, when I start hiring people, I always, you know, make shit work. I can make it work. And maybe I code some function in 100 rows. And then this math genius comes, you know, and does it in one or two lines. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, fuck it. Maybe I shouldn't do this. I should do something else. <laughs> yeah. So I took my uh, degree. Maybe you won't remember that. But in 2000, there was this IT bubble. And I it, remember that. Okay, yeah. And it totally crashed in 2001 or so. Yeah. And that's when I just finished my school uh, degree in, in computer science. 
and uh, there were no jobs. So I moved back to Stockholm. It was in Kruhansta. I did this degree. So I moved back to Stockholm and I was handing out newspapers. You, you remember those free newspapers, you know, like uh, Metro or uh, City or yeah. .se back yeah. in the days? I handed, I were working as, you know, handling out those newspapers. And uh, something around, there was a, some kind of techie required in the office of the distribution uh, company I was working for uh, as a driver. So I went there, I spoke to the CEO and he said, yeah, we're doing this project and uh, what they want is some kind of web page. Uh, you know, uh, the newspaper rack, if it yep. breaks down, the driver has to fix it. But they don't know if they're allowed to fix it or not because the newspaper will pay for it, so they have to approve it. Yep. So the idea was that the driver can take a, a picture and then somehow upload it to a web page and then it turns out, uh, it shows up in the newspaper office and they can just approve it. And you have to remember, this was back in the days when there were no phones with cameras. So you had those old cameras and you had to connect it to a computer with the USB, you know, all that. Oh. Yeah, so this was, you know, it was, uh, but, but back then it was you know, a high-end solution, you know, a web service, yeah. not the system we have to buy. So we developed this small module and they asked, kept asking for more and more and eventually it became a product. And today, I think around the company still exists, and I'm uh, just an owner uh, in the board. It's in Switzerland, lo located the company. And um, today, I think they handle around 14 newspapers around Europe. Oh, cool. Um, so it was one of the first uh, fully web based distribution systems specifically for free newspapers. Cool. Uh, and I was uh, one of the two, uh, we were only two people for five years. So, you know, sleeping on the floor using books as uh, pillows. I've done <laughs> all that. <laughs> cool. And um, what did you do afterwards? So after that, uh, I got married. So I decided it was time to move back to Sweden because I was living in Switzerland during those five, six years. Yeah. And now we are in 2000. Uh, 2000, yeah, somewhere around six, seven, uh, around there. Um, and for some reason, I wanted to start a transport company. Don't ask me why. Uh, I just thought it was a good idea like the atl uh yeah something like that but much smaller of course yeah uh, so we were like 10 cars or so um and then the market financial crash in 2008 happened <laughs> it, it, kind of your life story yeah different <laughs> crashes <laughs> different crashes yeah every time so i always uh, somehow end up in a crash so and when that happened i was in financial debt so I was, uh, I, I ended up in this, I don't know what you call it in English, but Kronofugden in Swedish, where you cannot pay your debts because the company crashed and I was personally liable for all the invoices and you know all the expenses. Yeah, so kind of an authority to collect money. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly, money collector. So I ended up there and I became depressed for like two years uh, because it was a hard blow uh, to me. And during those two years... For some reason, I decided I wanted to become a, a champion in World of Warcraft. I don't know why, but I just thought that was a good idea. Uh, so I did that six days a week, six hours per day for two years. And uh, my guild was actually uh, ranked number 11 in the world. And there were 12 million people playing that game back then. Wow. So, uh, you know, number 11 is not too shabby. 
that's uh, really impressive. I actually never played World of Warcraft myself, but okay. I've played other similar games yeah. uh, where yeah. I've also ended up quite in the top. Yeah. And it takes a lot of dedication. A it's, lot. It's more than a full-time job. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a manic dedication. It's uh, really on the borderline of, uh, you know, sociopath. <laughs> you really have to uh, go all in but of course you know going all in like that destroyed my health almost killed my marriage you know and uh, eventually my wife said enough is enough so i thought okay shit i have to fix this so uh, and i also gained a lot of weight i gained like 15 kilos or so i was up to 105 or 7 something like that yeah so this was around 2008 around one year after the iphone and when the app store was released 2008 yep. 2009 so I thought, okay, I heard about these apps. I will buy an iPhone and I will download RunKeeper and uh, I have to lose weight. So I downloaded RunKeeper, but I thought it was so fucking boring. I mean, it was, I was thinking, you know, why can it not be more like a game? Yeah. So my idea, well, I got an idea like, okay, what if it's like a mix between World of Warcraft and RunKeeper? <laughs> so it's like I sign up at RunKeeper, but they, instead of giving me, you know, a map, and some kilometers, they give me a character, a game character. Yep. And he should start off, you know, almost naked. And every time I run a kilometer, I get points. I can upgrade my weapons, my clothes, you know, you know, level up by running. That was yep. the idea. So you basically started to gamify yeah, running. Hell, yeah, uh, it started with running, but it became later, you know, like you can go to a gym and you can earn points through geofencing, you know, stuff. Yeah. And we did that all manually. Today, there's an API for geofencing in, yeah. in Google Maps. But back then, there wasn't. Yeah. So we did that manually, you know. So we took this idea. We went to Chalmers in, in Gothenburg. And we said, look here, uh, we have this idea and we want 2 million sec. And, you know, up until that point, Chalmers has always been, you know, financing uh, biotech companies, you know, medicine companies, and it takes 10 years to, to have a return on investment. So they weren't used to, you know, you're two guys with a slide deck and you're valuating yourself at 10 million? How is that possible? Yeah. Today, 10 million is nothing, you know. Just 10 million Swedish kroner. Yeah, Swedish yeah. kroner. And they said, no, you cannot be valued at 10 million. It's impossible. So we were actually the first San Francisco or Silicon Valley startup that they invested in. Uh, now they're a big hub, you know, for for startups. But back then we were actually the first one, call it call it an app company. Cool. Um, so we did that for four or five years. It went very well. We had like three hundred thousand users, active users on the on the platform, and then we got an offer uh, to sell the technical platform that we built, and we did that. And uh, yeah, that was a fun journey. Was it a nice exit? It was okay exit. It wasn't, you know, a billion dollar exit. Then I wouldn't be sitting here. I can promise you that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's more than most people will see in a lifetime, I think. Cool. When was this exit then? Was it 2000? Uh, 2014, I think. 13, 14. So I started after that doing some small angel investments in, in small companies. And I got a call from a headhunter, you know, one day. And they said, uh, yeah, are you the guy who just sold Health Heroes? Health Heroes was the name of the, the app. I said, yeah, that's me. Um, how can I help you? They said, yeah, you know, you want to meet with Stena? And, you know, up until that point, I've only had my own companies. So uh, when they say Stena to me, I think like, the, you know, the, the IRS, you know, the, the authorities. It's, it's so alien to me to work in a big company. 
But I thought, you know, they want to offer a free lunch, so I'll go there and I'll talk to them. Why not? Yeah. Even though you had that experience. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, a free lunch is a free lunch. <laughs> you don't have to be stupid about it. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, to the listeners who don't know, yeah, there might be some. What is Stena? Stena is a, a big, uh, uh, like a conglomerate of companies owned by a Swedish uh, industry family. One of the most wealthy families in Sweden. Yeah. Right? Yeah, worth billions of dollars yeah yeah, yeah. they're huge uh, and they are active within shipping and so on yeah shipping oil uh, real estate energy in general yeah and recycling yeah um, so they're really big so i went there and uh, now in hindsight you know they tell i realized that i was very arrogant when i went there because i didn't need the job and uh, you know i've been in a small company my whole life so i had clear opinions about you know what big companies, how, how stupid they are and they're going to all fail. And they also has a, you know, in the startup world, you talk about, you know, having a runway yep. and how far will your runway uh, stretch giving the money you have, you know. And I told them, you also have a runway, but you don't see the end. That's the only difference. So you're feeling confident, you know, and comfortable. But in the end, some small player will come and fuck you from the side. You know? And that and, you told the headhunter. Uh, no, no, that's Stena. So I was there. I went to Stena and had the meeting with them. Okay. And I and there were big managers, you know, and, and the CEO of Stena and so on. <laughs> uh, and I just told them, you know, I spoke my mind. You know, you're doing things wrong. You have big projects that cost 80 million sec uh, in general when they should cost 800,000. And uh, you have 50 people in meetings. Everyone has to have consensus because you are afraid of, you know, being blamed for your decisions. But if you have consensus and a protocol, then you can just point at the protocol and say, you know what, we had this decision together, so it's not my fault. Uh, and this is going to kill you. And they were sitting there like, you know, don't know how to respond, uh, basically. And uh, I left the meeting. I thought, ah, I won't get the job. Uh, and just like four four or five hours later, they called me and said, when can you start? <laughs> uh, so that was very interesting. Uh, cool. And um, so it's around that time you became kind of a public figure, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm very vocal about my opinions. So uh, I started, and I'm also been told that I'm very charismatic on, on stage. Um, yep. So I've been told, you know, to, to uh, go on stage, explain a little bit about what you do and so on. And when I do that, I never speak about, you know, current state. I always talk about visions, you know, where are we heading and how will we get there and so on. And bold statements. Uh, so one of the bold statements I made very early on in Stenaline is that Stenaline by 2021 will be the first autonomous shipping company in the world. And that was back in? 2015, I think. 15. So yeah. six years approximately. Yeah. Going from not autonomous at all to, to entirely autonomous. Yeah, entirely autonomous. So that was my bold statement, you know. Yeah, uh, and because pretty early on, and you, I don't know if you remember, but in 2014-15, AI wasn't on the table yet. You know, no. big data was a lot. You know, cloud, yeah, digitalization, uh, but no one talked about uh, AI and machine learning. And I'm not a data scientist, far from it. I'm really not. But I, I read a lot of tech blogs, like maybe 40 or 50 per day. Yeah. Uh, I read a lot of papers because I'm interested in that, but I, even though I don't understand it, but I'm trying to get a picture of what can it be used for. Uh, that's basically 
how much I understand it, to be honest. I don't understand random forest. I don't understand, you know, any of those stuff. Nothing. Yeah. I just want to figure out, okay, what can this be used for? And then, you know, by traveling around the world and observing a lot of things like not only my own industry that I'm working in, but especially other industries and connecting the dots. Okay, but this model that this researcher just developed or that Google released together with this process in Singapore, maybe we can offer this kind of service without you know doing it manually or whatever it might be. So that's basically what I do. I connect the dots and I spend my life trying to create more and more dots. Yeah. That's basically it. And you know, during these ideas, crazy ideas of what you can do with, with the machine learning and what is the prerequisites like, you know, you need to have your data in order and stuff like that. During that period, I became more and more a prominent figure in, in, in the press, you know, because I had bold ideas of what should be done and not done and which what is the vision that we are looking at and what is the future we can expect, you know, and stuff like that. So kind of a lot of people talked about the current problems, but you were one of you who talked about far yeah. into the future. Or far into the future, uh, far, three to five years, you know. That's far in this world, yeah. right? <laughs> when you ask someone, what's your plan for the coming five years, they always look at me in a strange way. Yeah, and yeah. And they say, yeah. we plan one year at most. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't like that. You know, my, my philosophy also when I'm leading, you know, teams and organizations and, and entire companies is that, okay, first we need to imagine what is it we're trying to achieve. Yep. You know, and once you know that, then it's much easier to accept the failures that comes along the way because it doesn't matter. You know where you are headed. So this failure is nothing in that context. If you just don't know the vision... And as soon as you have your first failure, then you will just lose, you know, confidence or, or motivation. Like, okay, we failed. No, but it doesn't matter. We're trying to build this building. Have you seen how cool it looks? Yeah. So it doesn't matter that the foundation cracked. We'll do it again. No worries. We'll do it differently. So that's like the, the, the metaphorical idea behind it. Yeah. We'll get back into that in a yeah. bit. Yeah, yeah. And um, quite recently, you changed job. Mm -hmm. And you became the chief digital officer at Coop. Yes, Coop Sweden. And what is Coop Sweden? Coop Sweden is one of the three top uh, grocery retailers. So it's like Walmart in the States or uh, uh, I don't know what's the equivalent in the, in the, in the rest of the world. But uh, Walmart in the States. Yeah, that's yeah. all you need to know. And that's also a funny story because that was also actually headhunting calling me. I was actually sitting at Inferno Online, you know, the, the, the gaming <laughs> it's the, cafe. It's the biggest gaming cafe in Sweden, right? Yeah, in the world. In the world? Yeah, they have a Guinness World Record for the biggest gaming cafe in the world. Okay, cool. I've been uh, gaming there like five times when I was younger. Uh -huh. Only five times? Yeah. I'm there five times a week, even now. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you have to be a nerd, otherwise... <laughs> what are you playing? Uh, right now, it's uh, League of Legends. Okay. Yeah, I don't have time for it. Is you that know. still around? Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's for the noobs like me, you know, the old yeah. people. They can play it now. Now it's easier, you know. But I, it's nostalgic. Yeah, it is. It's yeah. uh, mostly that, you know, play with friends and so on. But I was actually... I, was, I, had, I didn't have a job. Uh, so I was sitting at the gaming cafe, you know, playing in my sweatpants and everything, uh, you know, enjoying life. And then uh, also a headhunter called me and said, uh, uh, what do you think about becoming the CDO for Coop? And I said, yeah, that sounds cool, but I just have to finish this game first and then we can talk. <laughs> <laughs> 
So he called me back later, you know, after the game. I said, yeah, what's up? Uh, yeah, you know, Coop. Uh, I said, yeah, I know Coop. I, I don't like them very much because uh, I always shop at, you know, one of their competitors. Uh, that, that's your starting point when yeah, someone calls. Yeah, I don't yeah. like whatever you call from. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because, you know, I have to be honest. You know, it's better to be honest. You cannot get angry at your truth. And he said, yeah, they know uh, and they want to change things up, you know. So uh, we were recommending you, and uh, would you meet with them? I said, yeah, sure, I'll meet with them. So I I, I met with um, Magnus, who is the CEO of Coop. And one of the first, op- my opening line was, hello, I'm Amar, yeah. Just so you know, I don't like Coop. I don't shop at Coop. Uh, I, I prefer one of your competitors. He said, yeah, 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 we know. We know we have a, a struggle. Uh, that's why we're, you know, reshaping things. And, you know... Big cred to him and the management team that has the you know the balls to do something like this because things need to change and there is no secret that Coop is struggling in, in all areas uh, and uh, but I believe I mean if I wouldn't believe in the brand I wouldn't have taken the job uh, so I told Magnus that uh, I'm not here to beat your competitors I don't give a shit about you know Maxi or Willis whoever is uh, in this industry. What I'm interested in is what do we see as the next level customer experience? And then we have to work our way back and invent the technology for it. Not discussing technology and then designing an experience on that. Because that's when we fail. Yeah, cool. And we will get back into both Stena and Coop Mm -hmm. in a while. Yeah, Because you have worked with AI at both companies. And now at Coop you're kind of kickstarting the work there. Yes. So before we dig into these details, how do you define artificial intelligence? Uh, for me, the word artificial intelligence is like a group of machine learning and neural network technologies. That's how I define it. So it's it's like, you know, um, combining all these different kind of uh, techniques into one word. Yeah. And uh, so what these machine learning and neural network then <laughs> now you're putting me on the spot but machine learning to my understanding is based on algorithm techniques that are well developed and well known like you know there are i, I think there's stuff like random forest um, algorithms there is something called nearest neighbor and all those different kind of algorithms neural networks is something more of a black box um, it's more about putting in data and then having an output of that data, but not really understanding why. Yeah. So kind of the common thing between all of the algorithms you just mm. mentioned is that it learns from data, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then you have different complexity levels of the models. Yeah. Then I assume that you don't put simple automation into the world of AI. No, 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 no. That's more of uh, what's it called? Robotics. You know, yeah, robotic like that. process automation. Yeah. 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 Okay. Cool. And um, yeah, so some of the algorithms you mentioned, such as random forest mm, and so on, mm. is one of the most widely used algorithms. Okay. Yeah. I, I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> and it has actually been around for many, many years, not uh-huh. just recently. Okay. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. It has been hyped recently. Ah. Uh-huh, okay. Yeah. And since you're working with digitalization quite a lot, 
How do you relate digitalization and AI? I've heard, for example, uh, some people say that uh, digitalization is the first step when mm. you work with AI because that's how you collect data at yeah. large scale. Do yeah. you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, uh, at Stenaline, when we started there, and it's the same thing here at Coop as well, uh, I was very clear from the start that if we embark on a digitalization project or journey, whatever process we choose to start with, we need to have a clear picture of how will this process look like when it's fully automated. Yep. So that was like the end game for any project we started. We need to have an understanding of is this process uh, possible to fully automate? How will it look like? That doesn't mean it has to be automated in the first version. Maybe the technology is not ready. Maybe we are not ready and so on. But we need to have a clear picture of, okay, if we automate this part, how will it look like? And also understanding how will it look like in a bigger context. One of the biggest mistakes organizations do in, in digitalization projects it's, is not understanding that maybe in an analog world, HR doesn't have to talk to warehouse. Yeah. But in a digital world and in a digitalization process, they have to talk together because they affect each other. And I'll give you an example. So one of the things we're looking now at, at Coop is trying to create models that will predict how many visitors will we have. Yep. Uh, and not only for the next day, but the coming 30, 60, 90 days. And doing that, once we know that, that means that we have to talk to the warehouse so that we can automatically restock. Yep. If the models are accurate enough, they can just say that, okay, in six weeks, this is how much milk we need. And if we know how many visitors we will have, and even to some extent we can uh, simulate what kind of segments will we have. Will we have a lot of children, a lot of families, a lot of elderly and so on? We, If we then talk to HR and make sure that when they do their digitalization process, let's say they use a system that is cloud-based and tagging the profiles correctly of the employees, like what kind of competences do they have, how old are they, and so on. That means that our models can first predict how many visitors you will have, yep. but also automatically schedule the right amount of people that needs to work on that particular day yep. without us having to guess, you know, how many do we need on Monday evenings? How many do we need on Thursday mornings? If we have models that can correctly predict that, then we can just connect those two systems together and they will just automatically schedule things. So I call this the digital butterfly effect. And not many organizations understand that. They, they just go to each silo and digitalize within that silo. Yeah. But that's not enough. That doesn't give you the great benefit that you can have if you understand that. If you have a bigger perspective, many things in the process can be eliminated. Yeah, that's very cool. I think this goes into the discussion of data and how data is handled mm. in companies overall, right? Yeah. You have these data silos and when you want to work with machine learning, you kind of need a very broad and complete data set mm. describing each individual or whatever you're yeah. working with. And if you have this data divided into a lot of silos yeah. and they are not compatible when you merge them, and you end up with very little data. Mm. But uh, the example that you gave in terms of, uh, I mean, 
prediction of the traffic in the stores, mm. uh, coupling it to automatic uh, purchasing, mm. but also to staffing. Mm. And you said uh, you, you can uh, determine how many should uh, work yeah. at each point in time. Yeah. You mentioned also that the HR could describe the competencies of these employees, right? Yeah. So you could go even uh, further and uh, kind of choose which ones to work. If there are many children, then you maybe yeah, need yeah. people with patients yeah. and so on, yeah. right? Yeah, and also if you have you know elderly people, then you need people maybe with some medicine knowledge or whatever it might be. Uh, but also this this extends also you know to the marketing unit. Yeah. So if we know that there are a lot of you know elderly people during the day. Then yep. the messaging in the displays will change to bigger fonts or clearer colors or whatever it might be, you know, that is uh, suitable for yep. that segment. Uh, and you can even do that in real time. So if you use, you know, modern camera systems that can immediately understand what is going on in the store right now and how should the digital signage look like. So one of the projects we did at Stenaline was that we could see how many people were, for instance, in the shop versus the restaurant. Yep. And if there are too many people in the shop, the signage changed so that people go to the restaurant instead and so oh, on. So that's real time. Yeah, adapting. so that's real time, you know, adapting. But uh, in this case, do you use camera data then? Yeah, so what we do, I mean, technically what happens is that the camera uh, looks, you know, at the feed in the camera and then transcribes it to basically text yep. and then sends it to, to our cloud. And then our cloud model, the models there analyzes it and then comes to a decision and just implements it. So there is no, you know, we don't store any videos, you know, stuff like that. We just need the text. So in the GDPR <laughs> yeah, world, exactly. you just need to put that in. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that's what we do technically. But yeah. also there is a possibility if them, because there are different kinds of models that can detect, you know, fight, you know, if there's a fight going on yep. or if there is a threat situation. And in that case, the model can tag a clip and that clip will be stored uh, between seven and 90 days but depending on what the rules are you know yeah so that the police can come you know and and ask for it if they want cool so in the example that you just gave with the coop uh, predicting the traffic in mm. the stores i know that you have worked kind of with the same things at stena yeah right yeah to predict passengers on exactly. the ships yeah what data are you using for these predictions? Because you seem to be able to predict much longer than the traditional methods. Mm. I mean, the data itself is not very special. The only thing, I mean, one of the first projects we started at Stenaline was something we called the Pluto project. And what that did was we, I usually say, we democratized data. So yep. we made sure that all data that the company generated was in one place, yep. uh, in this case, in, in the cloud. Um, and we made sure that anyone could access that data uh, from the janitor up to the CEO. That is very uncommon. Yeah, yeah, uh, maybe. I, uh, yeah, I mean, okay, at Stenaline it was uncommon and very many people were angry at me for, for doing that. But eventually they realized, you know, the, the advantages. At Coop now, yeah, that's also some people have opinions about doing things like that. But have uh, you done the same there already? Yeah, we're doing that right now at Coop. And and Coop is uh, luckily a little bit better because they need to have structure in their data because, you know, they are under financial laws and stuff like that. Yeah. So luckily they are a little bit better, but they're also not as good as, you know, trying. Because accessing the data internally is one thing, but also from the outside, people should be able to access the data. So 
because innovation will not only come from us you know anyone can should be able to access our products or our opening times or our store layouts or whatever it is and i don't know what they can come up with i have no idea but we need to democratize data so that not only internally but also externally maxi should be able to access our data maxi is one of your main competitors yeah here. exactly um so I think that's quite controversial, right? <laughs> it is, yeah. Everyone is trying to protect their data and keep it uh, safe within yeah. their premises. Yeah. And you're talking about opening it opening up. Opening it up. And not, of course, I'm not talking about, you know, giving out personal information about individuals. Uh, it's not that. It's about aggregated, you know, behavior data that or product data, you know, stuff like that. So others can innovate, do something with it, you know, just like, just like, I don't know if SEE which is the local um, uh, train uh, company here in Sweden. I don't know if they still do that or not, but, you know, like providing departure times yep. for an API. Yep. Some some uh, whiz kid, you know, 15-year-old, will do something cool with that, you know. I yep. don't know, but uh, and we have to do the same thing. Our products should be open, you know, to, yep. to, uh, to the public. But in these cases, you work on collecting all the data within the company in one place. Yeah, and putting up structures, you know, and, and ETL, uh, uh, export, transform, load, you know, data processes and data engineering pipelines, you know, and what is real-time data, what should be real-time data, what is enough once a week, you know, stuff like yeah. that. And there you have your data science team who gives input, you know, uh, what, should, what do we need real-time, what do we don't need, where do we need to clean data? Where do we need to enhance data? And stuff like that. And yeah. that took long time. I mean, it took two years at Stenaline. Uh, I think here at Coop, it will take one year. You know, so that takes a long, long time. Yeah. And what kind of data do you end up with at both Sten and here? Uh, I mean, it's mostly focused around the customer. Yeah. So what kind of customer data, purchase data, behavioral data, you know, click data. All kinds of data. Is it on the website? The click yeah, data? the click data or in the app. Uh, yeah. And purchase data, is it... Uh, point of sale. Uh, is it through loyalty cards and so on? Loyalty cards, and, but also point of sale uh, data because we can see the transaction, uh, but we don't know for sure if it's you or not. But there are models that can pretty accurately uh, predict, you know, who is this person. Are you able to collect kind of where people are geographically in the stores or on the ships? Aha, uh -huh. yeah, but that's part of the we call it the vision project, um, and uh, that's one of the projects running at Coop now, uh, trying to understand if we can map flow data, meaning how they move around in the ship or in this case in the store, to the segment. You know, in general, how does this segment behave? Yeah. How do they behave in the store? How do they behave in the app? How do they behave uh, online? Uh, and so on. And since you said vision, yeah. is that done through cameras? Yeah, it's done through cameras. A combination of cameras, Wi-Fi hotspots, and LiDAR uh, yeah. radars. Yeah. So, I mean, this is kind of one of the main challenges of uh, physical stores, right? Mm -hmm. uh, compared to e-commerce. Yeah. Because in e-commerce, you can quite in detail track exactly what an individual is doing. Yeah, yeah. But uh, as soon as you go in-store, you kind of lose. It's a black box yeah, of data. it's a black box, yeah. So I think, uh, you know, when Amazon purchased Whole Foods, one of the first things they did was to decrease prices, right? Yeah. And then they introduced this camera system to mm -hmm. let you go into the store and not having to check out yeah. at the counter. Yeah. 
and uh, based on that i think a lot of people accepted yeah they are going to record me 24 yeah. 7. yeah but i actually think the plan is kind of to collect a lot of detailed data mm. right mm. Yeah, for sure 100 percent. and i think that in general people have no problem giving out their data as long as it creates some kind of value for them yeah. you know convenience yeah uh, so one of the things we're going to try now at Coop is this uh, scan and pay. Uh, so you can use your phone to, to scan and pay. So no registers, no nothing. Uh, and there the camera project is part of that. Because even though we don't use the cameras to actually know who you are and, and you know, charge you, because you're, u- you're using your phone to pay, but we can still, you know, detect if you pick something up, but you don't scan it. Yeah. So at least we can flag, you know, that okay, there is some suspect behavior here, and we can do a random check, you know, stuff like that, which becomes less random. Which becomes less random, yeah. <laughs> so we'll see. I mean, it's a test. So we'll see how good those models are. And obviously, I mean, if we don't feel comfortable with them being very accurate, then we will just skip that part altogether and and trust people. Yeah. And um, I mean, if you're able to track when people pick things up. Mm then you're also able to kind of track if they checked out with it or not. I mean, that's the same kind of problem that you're talking about to see if they are stealing things or being dishonest. Mm. But, um, I mean, if if someone picks something up, but they don't check it out, either they steal it or they put it back, right? Yeah. And uh, if it is the case that they put it back, then you can use this data to kind of... uh, You have a very strong indication that they have the intention yeah. or interest to buy it right yeah. yeah and then you could potentially connect it with a e-commerce store yeah. or maybe it's a kind of end of month before uh, the wage is coming yeah. in and then you know exactly what to recommend them mm. to push them into the store right yeah so this is part of the shelf analysis uh, system <laughs> everything yeah. is connected yeah everything is connected so basically what you do now in a modern store is you use a camera uh, and those cameras are so good today so it doesn't matter what camera you use uh, but then you connect different kind of services to that cloud. Yeah. So one one service is shelf analysis, another is fight detection, a third is smoke detection. Yeah. Uh, a fourth is flow management. Yeah. Uh, a fifth is something called a chord diagram. So you can see that people that go to Marlboro, or what's the not Marlboro the cigarette, Marlboro the chocolate. Marlboro. Marlboro. Ah, yeah, Marlboro. <laughs> <laughs> So people go to Marabo first, they always tend to go to bread second, you know, yeah. things like that. Uh, and this helps you, you know, understand that, okay, when is it you are making the most money, you know, of the customer? What kind of flows do you want? And this is, of course, connected to, for instance, now we're releasing a chatbot called Cooper. So at Stenaline, what we did there with that chatbot is that from our analytics team, we understood eventually that in general, if a man eats first, they tend to spend 4.2% more on board. So when Stina, which is a chatbot, when you go on board to a man, it says, hello, welcome. Now we have burgers, 49 crowners. But to a female, it says something different. You know, so you can do things like that, you know, nudging and so on uh, with that kind of technology. But then you need to understand that everything is connected. You know, that's the thing. Not, Not many companies understand that. Uh, and that's the secret, basically, to my success, is I, I never go into details. Never, ever. Uh, I just zoom out and then always look at the big picture. Okay. You focus on the house. Yeah, exactly. That's all I focus on. And then, I mean, being, I mean, I mean, being a programmer, 
I'm never too worried about the technical aspect. You know, I know in worst case scenario, I can sit down and do it myself. Even a random forest now. Yeah, I, I'm sure I can Google it and some stack overflow, you know, copy paste, and then I'll make it happen. I, I don't think it will not be perfect, <laughs> but I'm confident that I can make it work. <laughs> yeah. Well, nowadays it's just like uh, if you have the data ready, yeah. it's just at most like, I mean, you can do it easily within 50 lines of code. Yeah. yeah easily. Yeah. So I, I'm not too worried about that. So I always, you know, I'm focused on, you know, the big picture. How can we make everything, you know, uh, work together like a symphony, you know. Yeah. But, I mean, what you kind of has become famous for mm. is to go into companies that are very non-digital. Yeah, yeah, traditional. Yeah, if traditional. You, if you want a nice yeah. word for it. <laughs> yeah, sure. Traditional, <laughs> I meant. And then you just uh, kind of change them entirely. Yeah. 180 turnaround. Yeah, yeah. So... Have you seen any similarities between Coop and uh, Stena, even though they are in totally different industries? Yeah, 99% is the same. In what um, sense? Uh, the, the, the lack of understanding of how important the data is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's pretty clear. It's the same for all companies, you know, yeah. except for those who work with data, maybe. But, but you know, the lack of understanding how important um, the data is. So that's the number one thing. Uh, the lack of understanding how important customer behavior is, you know, understanding what is customer behavior. Yeah. Uh, number three, the lack of understanding the digital economy. So I'll give you an example. Why did Facebook pay $1 million for Instagram? When one, one billion. One billion, one billion, exactly. One billion dollars for Instagram when there were eight employees and no money, no turnover, no income. Why did Facebook pay 19, 19 billion dollars for WhatsApp when their income was smaller than my personal AB company? So when I go to this board of directors of these multi-billion companies, I mean, Coop is a big company. Yeah. I'm very, you know, hot shots in the, in the board of directors. And I asked them this simple question. Show me the formula that Facebook used to put a value on WhatsApp. And they cannot answer. And I asked them, in a digital world where the, next, the current generation and the next generation is bred in digital, this is your customers that coming, you know, in the five years from now, they will be your biggest customer base. And you don't understand how the digital economy works. How will you take this company forward? So that's the, the main things, you know, you need to understand. And, and it's, it's a, a digital economy for those who wants to know, you know, the, 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 the way these investors put values, these, to some people they seem like ridiculous values, to me they just seem like common sense, is that traditionally when you measure the performance in a, in a standard company like Coop or Maxi or whatever, they look at sales. In a digital company, they look at activity and retention. Yeah. So how much retention do we have on this service that we are providing? Because the more retention you have, retention means that people keep coming back. Yeah. So the more retention you have, the more loved, the more delighted your customer is because it's providing so much value that they're coming back to you every day. And it can be like if you look at WhatsApp, it can be like, you know, the reason they were valued so much is because 90% of those downloading WhatsApp starts using it and more than 80% of 
we're using it six times a day. This is the 19 billion dollars. But uh, I mean, so there's a lot of value created for the user since they kind mm. of appreciate it, right? Mm. But what is the value created to the company purchasing these companies? So in this formula, there are three parts. One is activation. The yep. second is retention. The third is lifetime value. And they know that, okay, given looking at under, like if we take WhatsApp as an example, looking at uh, WeChat in China, they can look at, okay, what is the average lifetime value for them? Because they have succeeded very well in creating value, monetary, money value for the, for the owners. They have kind of done what Facebook is dreaming to do. Exactly. So they go to them and they look at what is the lifetime value of your users? And they, you know, even if they don't tell it, they can figure it out pretty easy using generic uh, formulas. And they say, for instance, that, okay, in general, during a lifetime, one user, if we get them active, uh, they are worth, I don't know the number, let's say $2,000 yeah. during their lifetime. And they just put that into the formula. So you have 1 billion users um, and times 2,000 and 40% of them are active, you know, whatever it is they have in their KPIs, yeah. and they just come to a value. And for me, personally, I think that, if we look at Coop, for instance, the way to succeed forward is not pushing out more coupons or better prices, because we do that next week, and then our competitor do it in two weeks, and then the third competitor does it in three weeks, and people will forget about us. But if we can create value by providing a platform where your data can be shared, where you can share your receipt with someone else, where you can follow the receipts of some famous fitness model so you can buy what they buy, yeah. this provides value to me. And if we create that kind of stickiness in our platform and increase that from very low today to people interacting with us, money or no money, in one way or another, once a day, that is a platform that is valued much more than all the stores we have today. Yeah. And uh, the concept of stickiness is quite interesting here. Mm. It's something that I think very few really understands. Mm. And uh, for example, companies like Uber, there has been this discussion, do they have stickiness or not? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the main dividers for people arguing are they worth anything yeah, or yeah. not? I mean, they aren't, aren't worthless, but maybe not as much as yeah. they were in the IPO. Yeah. So how would you explain stickiness? Stickiness is creating something very, very valuable for the customer. So they kind of don't leave you. Yeah. Even when you kind of ramp up the cost, you charge them more and so on, and yeah. they still stay I, with you, yeah, right? Yeah, still stay. Because in the end, you know, uh, fluctuating, you know, fluctuating the price, you know, one kroner here or there, it doesn't matter if the value you're providing is so good to me yeah. that you know I don't care. It, it, it's it's helping me in my everyday life so much that it's fine. You know, if you yeah. want uh, to charge something for it. Yeah, and uh, I mean we've seen that uh, for a lot of companies they go in quite low or for free initially. Yeah, and then they kind of get you to adapt your life around it in yeah. a sense. And then when you're all in, yeah, to the extent so it becomes very kind of difficult and cumbersome to change your behavior yeah, yeah. then they start charging yeah uh, or putting in ads or whatever yeah, it might i mean be. facebook yeah. ads 
Exactly. Uh, you see Spotify, Netflix, they just, oh, we increase the price by one, two dollars. Yeah. yeah, they do that every six months. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, you see their tremendous growth. But yeah. I mean, if you look behind the price increases, it's a lot the same user base. Yeah. But they pay a lot more. But yeah. that's the stickiness, right? Yeah. And uh, if you compete with prices and so on, mm. uh, then you don't really create a stickiness behavior because the mm. one who has the lowest price will always get yeah. these customers. Right? Yeah, so it's fake, you know, fake loyalty. Yeah. Uh, and I think machine learning and kind of the data-driven approach towards customers mm. is very interesting when it comes to stickiness. Yeah, because, you know, one way of creating stickiness is how can we make this relevant for you? Yeah. And figuring out what is relevant is not something we do manually. That's impossible. Yeah. So we we use uh, machine learning to f- understand, you know, who are you? What kind of behavior do you have? Yeah. What is relevant for you? At what time? In what ta- channel? Exactly. So kind of, uh, this is one of the things, the more the consumer is using your services, yeah. the more data you collect on them yeah. and the better service you can provide for provide them. For them yeah. And after a while, they feel that the experience is so smooth, yeah. so they will not go to a competitor. Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons we're not doing you know, very well is that we lost our relevance. We're not relevant in the stores. We're not relevant online. We're not relevant in our apps. And one of the foundations of creating relevance is data and machine learning. Because relevance is something that you have to automate. Why? To one, because it's important. Uh, if you have one million users, you cannot have one million curators figuring out, you know, for each individual, yeah. what is relevant for for Patrick or what is relevant for for Amer, and then creating a a process chart <laughs> for each individual. That's impossible. That yeah. there is no money in the world for that. Yeah. So kind of the, the old way has been to kind of send out the same coupons or whatever for to everyone. everyone. Yeah. One size fits all in machine learning with the big data. If you do that correctly, you have the ability to go to the individual level. Exactly, yeah. So one example of that is, you know, today we will send out uh, a recipe for chicken and everyone gets the same. But now that we're releasing our chatbot, what what people don't understand, even internally, is the biggest value for that chatbot is not, you know, we know it's a FAQ answer that barely works. We know that. But that's not the point of doing it right now. The point of doing right now is we believe in this future where everything is conversational. Yeah. Uh, and we need to start now in a small manner so that we can learn, you know, what is the behavior we're expecting from our customers? Where is the organizational changes we need to do internally? But the biggest value is that if you ask in that chatbot, is there peanuts in a Twix? Yeah. Then the memory model, that is your personal memory model, I call it a memory model, Technically, I don't know what it is, but I call it the brain. The chatbot will remember you and it probably lean towards maybe he's allergic to peanuts. And if you in the same time in your receipts have no nuts whatsoever, then it will say, okay, 70% accuracy, Patrick is allergic to peanuts. So when the CRM system sends out emails, if there is a, a recipe for chicken, then we will not send you the recipe with nuts. We will send you a different recipe, but still chicken, you know. Yeah. So that's again, you know, digital power of life. Like everything is connected. And one of the biggest values we get from things like conversational is the data. Yeah. And many people don't realize that. 
but this conversational data is text-based, right? It can be text, it can be voice, it doesn't matter. When yeah, I say but uh, voice uh, translates into text for exactly. computers. Exactly, technically, So, so yeah. in the end, it's, it's text, text for in the, the computer. End, yeah. And um, that's very difficult to work with mm -hmm. in general in machine learning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, a nicely formatted tabular data set, that's the dream, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you have text. And text data is one of the biggest uh, types of data that mm. exists out there. Mm. But I think no one has really solved the problem of using text data in a very nice way mm. yet. Mm. But you mentioned that you have done uh, chatbots at both Sten and now Cooper yeah. at Coop. And you said that it's only a FAQ. No, it's actually more than that. But I gl uh, when, I, when I summarize it, I, I summarize it in a way that most people see it. And it's like a glorified FAQ answer but it does much more at St at Stenaline now it, it answers you know departure times you know how long will it take me to get there are there any toilets and all stuff it answers a lot what kind of menu do I have today and so on and now but, but these answers they are still they're curated yeah yeah so, so uh, they are pre-written yeah it's not unsupervised so a lot of people when they hear the word chatbot they think that I mean, the chatbot will understand me as a customer yeah. as well as a human is yeah. understanding me and yeah. it will remember me and it will also kind of make up sentences from scratch, oh, right? Yeah, it doesn't, yeah. Th that's not existing. Oh. I mean, then we get into the part of natural language understanding yeah. and natural language generation. Yeah. And there we are very far away yeah, from something yeah, yeah. usable, right? I've read some research about it, but it's it's not something that can be used um, uh, in, in commercial uh if you uh, haven't yes. used it, it's not usable. Yeah, no, <laughs> if we haven't used it. But, but what we do technically, I mean, it's not like we're inventing our own natural language processing and understanding. We're actually using, I think in this case, they're using Watson. Yeah. The Watson APIs. And the only, and people ask me, why Watson? Why not Cortana? Why not? I mean, in general, they're all the same. I mean, the, the, the performance level is 1% difference between them. And the only reason I know this company, because this is an external company that does this for us, the only reason they're using Watson is because the UI is much nicer to work in. Yeah. That's the only reason. So it's a customer experience. Yeah, again. it's a customer experience thing, exactly. There is no light years ahead technology somewhere you know, that they're not using. And the, and the day we see some kind of technology that pushes this forward 10 years, they will switch the APIs directly. Uh, but it, the customer will never notice it because it's just an API call in the background. The customer thinks it's done by Stenaline or by Coop. So IBM Watson hasn't created any stickiness? No, 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 no. You just the, switch directly. We switch directly if something is light years ahead. Uh, yeah. Definitely. And just to clarify a bit more about these chatbots and how mm. they work now, yeah. because I think there's a bit, uh, I mean, a lot of people are having misconceptions. Yeah. So it's kind of, you have uh, pre-written answers. Yeah. Um, and then you, of course, can have insertion of fields, such as, I mean, departure time. And yeah. Kind of the sentence is pre-written, and then you insert some specific values. Exactly, right? yeah. And then you kind of just match the questions coming in with the pre-written answers. Right? Yeah. So what happens technically is that it's basically an API gateway where a, a message comes in, yeah, uh, and we don't really care from where this message comes. So it can be an SMS, it can be um, a, a, uh, our app, it can be online. So it's still everything is the same uh, uh, architecture. So this comes in, and in this sentence we send it to Watson in this case, and then we get back a set of intentions. 
So yep. Watson tells us what what is the intention of this. Yep. Based on the intention, we do certain things. Like if it was a question about uh, opening times, then yep. we go to the opening time database and get the answer there. And there is a pre-written answer, and we just put in the the, the times. Um, and we when we start these kind of projects, we basically just rip off the FAQs on the pe- on the page, yep. and then we release it. And then we see what happens. So 3%, I think, is correct. It answers. Uh, <laughs> 97%, it doesn't work. Uh, and that's how we started at Stenline as well. Today, it's 50-50 after two years. And that's, I mean, it feels much more because uh, I think it's more than 50, maybe 55 or 56. Um, and it's going, moving fast forward. So it's better to release something fast and see what do people ask yeah. You know, what what are they asking? So in it's the standalone case, we haven't released the coupe one yet, but at the standalone case, we released the FAQs and we, then we noticed people were asking about toilets. Where are they? Yeah. Okay, and then we built in the chat bot. In the chatbot for some reason. Uh but that's what they ask still. <laughs> so we put in a map function, you know, we a widget in the chat where it shows the map and you go or sometimes images, you know, showing this is to the right and so on, depending on where you are, which terminal you're in. Uh, then people start asking about, you know, prices. Yeah. Okay, then we connect to the price database. And then departure times. And how often uh, do you depart per month or whatever, you know. So we just developed the features as we moved along, you know. Instead of trying to guess, you know, what is it people are going to use this for? And then developing for two years. And then it will still be only 3%. Because we, we how can we guess what people will ask? Yeah. Um, so, but um, is everything developed internally by your own staff? What we did was at the start, and it's the same thing now at Coop, we use external help and we try to develop our internal competences uh, to match what we think we will need in the future. But th- some things we keep external and some things we, we move internal. So in general, what we're trying to do is every data and machine learning understanding must be in-house. That's our goal. Why? We just think that the people who should know about our customers the best should be ourselves. Yeah. So that's like a general rule. And then we have everything facing the customer, front-end design and so on. That's also something we're trying to have in-house so that we can try things out quickly yeah. uh, and, and release them fast. But back end, you know, and heavy systems and things like natural language processing and stuff like that, which we will never beat Facebook on anyway or so, that we we put uh, outside. But uh, I mean, when you say you put outside, you still recruit uh, consultants to, and then you source in quite cheap systems in a sense, right? Yeah, yeah. So the other very popular alternative is that you buy some very expensive chatbot that is supposed uh-huh. to work from start, right? Yeah. And then... I mean, if you're if you're a leader with no technical skill, then you will go that path. But me, because I'm a programmer at heart, so I understand immediately, but this cannot work. You still need to... Then I might as well just do it myself. And the value that you're providing is actually an API that you're using from Watson anyway. So I'm just doing the same thing. But um, there are several big uh, chatbots providers here that have sold very expensive projects to actors here Mm. in Sweden, for example. Yeah. And then we have seen some of them being kicked out because they haven't worked. Yeah. Uh, What's your take on these type of investments? Because that has been mainly 
I mean, AI investments here in the Nordics, a big chunk of that has gone into chatbots. Mm -hmm. I think that people need to understand what is it a chatbot actually can do today. And what they're doing, all these, you know, Boost.ai and all those companies that provide chatbot solutions today, they are drumming the marketing drums really, really hard. And for a techie, I understand, you know, what it means when they say chatbot. I know exactly the, it, its limits. But if I go to my mother and I say, this is a machine you can talk to, she will not have put any limitations on herself when she talks to it. Yeah. But the marketing that they're using gives the impression that it's just like a human. Yep. And we are far from that. So I think that I would never take such an investment because I understand where the true value is. And it's the APIs that are anyway provided almost for nothing. Yeah. Uh, you just need to build an, a UI on top of it, basically. Would you pay 10 million to get the best off-the-shelf solution? No. Chatbot? No, no. I mean... We actually had um, uh, an article last year for Stenaline where they uh, voted best conversational uh, chatbot within travel. Yeah. And that was the Stenaline bot. And that's not even close to 10 million <laughs> in development. And do you think that that chatbot is good compared to the marketing that other actors are doing on their chatbots? Uh, in general... I think that the Stina chatbot is much better than the, what they're providing today. Yeah, much better than what they're providing, but is it close to what they claim in their marketing? No, no, no not even that. Is <laughs> no, no, no. They claim too much. They really claim like it's a human, like an employee. Yeah, you hear the words cognition and so yeah. on. No, no, that's all fake. There is no cognition, not yet. No, no. Yeah. I mean, we even went to, you know, Emilia, uh, IPsoft, you know, we were in their offices, you know, and, you know, I mean, the marketing material seemed impressive. And then when you look at the architecture, then you realize it's basically the same things. They've just added some cool stuff that keeps things in memory, but it's fake. You can do it with a MariaDB or a NoGriff uh, database anyway, the same thing. Yeah. Cool. But you, you need to be a techie to understand it. That's the thing. Yeah, not every leader is a techie. You know. Yeah. It's very interesting to hear from someone who has worked and built chatbots from mm. the start, in mm. a sense. Cool. And um, I mean, when you go to either Stena or Coop, you get headhunted each time. And then you meet this top management team and you kind of are very direct and uh, they kind of like it. Mm. But despite that, mm. do you get full on support from the start? Yeah. For example, I mean, in Stena. Yeah. Did you get full support from the top management from the start? Yeah, I did. Yeah, so that's uh, imp that's very important, I would say, to have uh, full support. Uh, and in the Stena case, I got it from the owner, Mr. Don Sten Olson. Uh, I was his digital mentor, so every uh, cool. two weeks we met. You know, we had our walks and we were discussing, you know, digital economies. What does a platform do? How do you make money in a platform? You know, things like that. I'm just envisioning that yeah. you're walking on a big ship. Ah, no, we were walking actually in the forest near his house. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just picturing Gothenburg, uh, the yeah, harbor, yeah, yeah, walking yeah. a ship. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it was a, yeah. and you know, he's a, he's a fun, he's, a, he's like 75 or so now. So he's a fun dude to hang around with and he gets, you know, angry and, you know, 
oh, but it doesn't work like that. And I said, yeah, but that's how it works, Don. You know, this is a new economy. I said, oh, okay. So, so yeah, I mean, he's a, he's one of the most powerful people in, in Europe in this industry. So he's not stupid. He understands what he knows, but he also understands and accepts what he doesn't know. Yeah. Um, and that's a, a trademark I've seen in a lot of successful people to to admit when they don't know and listen to others. So so that's very important. And Coop, uh, the same thing, you know, from the owners, COEF, Consument Vereningen, to, to, my, to my boss, the CEO, they have all full support for, for what I'm trying to do here. And that's very, very important because you will get friction. Yeah. You will get, you know, conflicts uh, and so on. Uh, it was a funny story. Me personally, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a positive guy. So I'm always happy. I'm never, you know, angry. Uh, I'm not upset too often. Almost never. Um, and uh, outside World of Warcraft, of course. Outside World of Warcraft, because in World of Warcraft you can rage and stuff. You know, yeah. <laughs> that's. I, I, I don't <laughs> trust you if you're ranked 11 without raging every now and then. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have high expectations of people. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, one of the things, you know, uh, I did this psychology test before I took this job, and uh, in the one of the questions was, um, uh, "Have you ever been in a conflict?" And I said no, because to me, nothing is a conflict. You know? To me, like Yemen, that's a conflict in yeah. my world. Not some guys in a blazer, you know, talking shit about some project that no one gives a shit about. You know? That's not a conflict for me. So I said no on that question. And then they, were, uh, they called eight references you know, for, for this job. And they all had the same uh, story about me. And then this psychologist, they, I had this review with her, and she said, I know, I know now why you said no. I said, okay, tell me why. She said, it's not that you haven't been in a conflict. It's that you don't understand when you are in a conflict. <laughs> and, you know, that, that's how you have to view things. You know, it's, I mean, my wife is a doctor. So sometimes she tells me about, you know, this two-year-old coming in. Uh, we tried this, we tried that, down, down, down. She died. Okay. You know, and then in the same time, in the same day during uh, work, you know, some someone is angry about some kind of bullshit project that doesn't kill anyone. No one will die from it if it's wrong. Yeah. And, you know, you get some perspective, like, relax. What is it we're doing here? We're selling milk and, you know, uh, crackers. Relax. I remember you have once said that you're kind of like Wonder Woman. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think you showed a picture of Wonder Woman when she holds up a shield mm. to protect her team. Yeah. And you say that's you when you work in a big company yeah. and you protect kind of the data scientists and the techies. Yeah. And you protect them against words such as business case, return yeah. on investment, yeah. topics, yeah. etc. Steering, steering groups yeah, and steering committees. Steering groups, yeah. Yeah. It's kind of your approach when you say, yeah, just relax. Yeah. No one died. But in reality, people care about return on investments and so yeah. on from business side, right? Yeah. yeah. So, so can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, uh, what it all boils down to is that these kind of technologies that I'm working with, they require different methods, you know, to learn from them. So traditionally, what you do in a, in a big company is you need to have, first of all, you need to invite all the stakeholders for, so, so, let's say we have a project X. You invite all the stakeholders and they're like 17. So you have 17 calendars you have to synchronize. Uh, and that means all of a sudden you are, you know, four months into the future. 
to even have this startup workshop. Yeah. And also people are sitting there for four hours, you know, expressing their opinion and nothing will be decided. So if you calculate how much this costs, you know, waiting for months, 17 people, all with salaries and four hours, you know, spent on that day. So for this project, let's say it's 320,000 kroners, Swedish kroners. So that's the cost if we do it that way. But if someone just downloads or signups or whatever it is, tries it out, measures it in one week, and then come to a conclusion, and the whole thing costs 40,000 kroners. Which one is better? Yeah. <laughs> but um, I think most people don't have the luxury of not having to deal with these corporate politics in a sense. I mean, in, at, now I'm in the board of directors uh, at Coop, but at Stenline I wasn't. Yeah. But I don't give a shit. I mean, no one will physically come and hit me if I do something. But you were also maybe in a position where if you were fired, you had enough in the okay. bank, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not afraid of getting fired. You know, that's actually my goal when I start a job. You want you know? to end <laughs> up at uh, Inferno <laughs> <laughs> online and game. Uh, game, yeah. No, but I mean, you, you and also in Sweden, it's not so easy to get fired. <laughs> so I, I don't know I've never heard of anyone getting fired <laughs> to be honest <laughs> so I mean you need to uh, a lot of people you know I hear this a lot this excuse yeah I don't have the mandate to do that no one will give you mandate take it you know just You're kind of you ask for forgiveness rather than permission yeah. type of guy I mean if if it didn't work pff, fuck it I wasted 40,000 kroners it's better than wait you know 320,000 kroners and it still wouldn't be a decision after that. Yeah, I think this also gives some perspectives. You are talking about 40,000 yeah. and not hundreds of thousands or millions. Yeah. I mean, AI investments, normally when you see the big headlines and mm. when you talk to companies, I mm. mean, they are in the millions, right? Yeah, yeah. Sometimes tens or hundreds of millions. Mm. And um, I know you've also said before that uh, you can, with your personal credit card, purchase the tech stack of Stenaline. Yeah, yeah. A multi-billion dollar company. Yeah, yeah. What do you mean with that? So, I mean, you know... Do you have a very nice credit card? Yeah, no, no. It's uh, actually in depth and high depth. So, uh, <laughs> what, what it is about, you know, is in the 70s, 80s and 90s, uh, technology was very expensive, you know, during the information age. Uh, and only companies with big resources could afford it. But today, everything is cloud-based, and it, in most cases, it's for free. You sign up, you or you pay like you know nine dollars a month, you know, and things like that. Um, so I can access the same tech stack as any other company in the world right now. There is nothing exclusive to Amazon that I cannot access. They even <laughs> provide their tech stack, you know, as a service. Yeah. So. The only difference is, of course, the scale. But if I need the scale that they have, that means I have a lot of customers. So it's, in a way, a good problem to have. Um, so that's what you need to understand, you know. When I say that you're going to try things out and see what happens, I don't mean, you know, try it on an emergency brake system. You need to have some common sense. I mean, you know, try it on a button or something, you know, you've been discussing for, like, 10 months, but it's a simple thing that you can just try, and if it goes wrong, pff, no, no, it doesn't harm anyone, you know. Yeah, I don't know why, but common sense goes out the window in corporate environments. But then you kind of you find good proof of concept projects yeah. Yeah. that can remain small scale. Yeah, and try and, it out. Yeah, 
I think um, that's one of the difficult things to do in big companies, right? Mm, mm. Because if you involve all of these hot shots, yeah. uh, then you can't focus on a 40,000 yeah. no, sick project. It's impossible. Yeah, then it becomes large scale and mm. then uh, you get to more critical applications and then you're afraid and nothing happens. Yeah, and nothing happens. So that's the standard standard process in a big company. Yeah. And my job is to make sure that even though at Stenaline specifically, now I'm in the board of directors, so no one can really yell at me, but but in Stenaline, you know, I could go to the management and they would yell at me. I said, this is wrong and why are you doing this? And I said, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Okay, sorry, yeah. Then I go back to the team. Great work. They loved it. Keep going, you know. <laughs> so that's what I meant with the shield, you know. Until, because I know they will deliver results. Yeah. So until the results come and then they take it as their own, you know, the managers and 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 beat themselves in the chest and say, you see what we're seeing, what, what we're doing? You're one of the most modern digitalization companies in Sweden, you know. Yeah. But that's fine. And um, I mean, now you have said several times that you're not a data scientist. No, I'm not. But still, you have been working a lot with AI, right? Yeah. So how do you go about to set up a team around you? So... At Stenaline, what, what happened at Stenaline, because that's a good example, is uh, it was actually uh, a, a current project that everything that started this whole journey. So one, one of the projects that were there when I started was that uh, they wanted to create, they had three member databases, membership databases, and they wanted to merge it to one. Yeah. And the discussion was, how many customer groups do we have? So there are eight different markets in Stenaline. Of course, market X thinks that these 19 groups are very important, while market Y thinks that these 45 groups are very important. Yep. And market Z thinks that now we, these five, these are enough. You know. So there's a lot about you know a lot of opinions about something that is very easily checked using machine learning. Yeah. So. I was thinking, again, I'm not a data scientist, but I was thinking, hmm, I wonder, I, and this was 2014, and I've been reading in some kind of, you know, tech blogs and so about this new machine learning thing that is, you know, rising, and I wanted to understand what it is, and it was something about understanding and learning and, you know, predicting. So I was thinking, you know, to myself during that meeting, I wonder if there is an algorithm for clustering customers. Feels like it should be. Yeah. So I just Googled, you know, Gothenburg, because it was a Gothenburg AI company. And then a company popped up and I just uh, popped in at them in the office. I said, you know what? Can we cluster customers mathematically? Yeah, for sure you can. You can use this technology. I said, okay, I don't want to know what technology you use. I just want you to do it. Yeah. <laughs> so I just, you know... Uh, Gave them the data, and of course, you know, the data was not given to me freely. I had to steal it. I had to go there after hours and steal it because no one wanted to give it to me. So I stole the data, and then I went there. <laughs> so, Just uh, if you're listening, this is not common procedure. <laughs> I mean, of course, you have to make sure that it's not spreading around and so on. So I had an NDA yeah. with them and so on. But, <laughs> but then it's okay, right? Yeah, then it's okay. <laughs> Uh, so legally, they could not do it anyway. But uh, for some reason, you know, the data popes, they didn't want to give it to me. So I just uh, stole it. Uh, <laughs> the data popes. Yeah, the, I call them data popes. <laughs> uh, they're always someone who thinks they own the data. 
<laughs> okay, so uh, you went off. So, yeah, I went off to this AI company and within like uh, two weeks or so, they prepared, you know, they said, okay, these eight customer groups are the most important one yep. and these uh, are not important. And then I just killed the discussion right there, uh, then and there. I said, okay, no more discussion. This is a statistical fact. This is how we're going to do it. Um, and then that's how everything just then proceeded to data, bigger data projects and then more machine learning and so on. Yeah. Cool. But um, so this was the first project you did. This was the first project. And then that's when we realized that maybe data science is a new core competence. Yeah. Uh, so I started by surrounding myself with very smart, you know, data scientists. Uh, and then they will need in their turn, you know, full stack developers so it can help them, you know, publish APIs and 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 uh, containers in the cloud and stuff like that. And uh, that's more your space, right? That's more my space, yeah. How many data scientists did you recruit at Stiena? When I left, I think there were six data scientists. Today, I don't know how many there are, but I, th- I, I believe more than 10. Yeah. And uh, the full stack that you talked about, yeah. how many were they in comparison? Uh, uh, each data scientist had one full stack developer. So they were working in pair. Yeah. Always. And can you explain this interaction between data scientists and full stack? Why is that so important? Uh, because the data scientist might be good at, you know, coding the model, you know, preparing the data and so on. But then we need to publish an API so some service can call it. So basically, uh, so it becomes usable. Usable, exactly. So you can call it. And, and they sit together. And in the same time, a big advantage of that is they learn from each other. So yep. the data scientists learn how to, you know, publish an API. And the API, a full stack developer learns, you know, the basics of machine learning and what kind of libraries do you use and, and so on. So the, that combo we found out was very, very powerful because they didn't need anyone to, go, to, to help them go from theory to publish the API. Yeah, I think uh, normally when you look at uh, big AI projects or machine learning projects and mm. you see what's taking all the time, mm. it's partly, I mean, to find the correct business problem to solve yeah. and find yeah. the data and data so on. For it as well, yeah. uh, and then you start to actually build things. And then you have, uh, in many cases, the full stack team is outside the data science team. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, I mean, you wait for months yeah. between each iteration. Yeah. But in your case, it sounds like you have stolen the data. You yeah. put it centrally. Yeah. So the entire data thing is kind of sold. Yeah. And uh, you let them be quite experimental when it comes to their yeah. problems. Yeah. You just give them the data and you say, here is my credit card. Yeah. <laughs> Do, Do whatever, whatever you want need. within yeah. that limit. Yeah. And uh, then they have the entire team needed there in a sense, yeah. uh, the data scientists and the full stacks to put it into some kind of small scale production. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's actually, it sounds like a luxury to work there as a data uh, scientist. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, I mean, we stole a lot of competence from Volvo cars and so on. So the word is uh, spreading in, in Gothenburg that Stenoline is the, the place to be. Yeah. And hopefully I'm trying to achieve the same thing with uh, Coop as well. Uh, we have our new head of AI now joining uh, in May. Yeah. Um, I cannot say his name yet, but uh, it's a very, very smart uh, person. I know that you've also recruited an illustrator to your team. Yeah. To so, your AI team. Uh, yeah. So I have my personal uh, illustrator and I have, I've had him now for six years. Uh, because every time I start something, I always start with a vision. 
So yeah. I, I I have him paint, you know, the vision, the uh, house, uh, the house. Yeah, this is how it will look like, and this is why we should doing it, and this is the feelings that will the customer will feel, and this is how happy they will look or not happy if it doesn't work, you know. And once I show that vision and you know make people uh, sold on that vision, then we you know the the teams come in, the people that can actually do it, you know, that are much smarter than me, try to figure out okay how do we enable this vision. Um, because I always say you know start with the uh, the experience and then invent the technology afterwards. Is that kind of how you get on board both the data scientists and tech people and the business side? And the business side, yeah. And the and the top management and the owners, you know, and stuff like that. Because no one cares about MariaDB or TensorFlow. Yeah. No one even knows what that is. But if I show them, you know, what is this going to entail? What does this mean for the customer? Uh, then they can either say yes or no to that, you know. But seeing something they don't understand, most people will just say, instead of saying, I don't understand, they will just say no. Yeah. Because they don't want to admit that they don't understand. And there is no win in it for me to stand on stage and, and, and babble a lot of tech words just to seem smart. So I, you kind of uh, use your illustrator to create a story or yeah. a vision that is hard to say no to. Yeah, exactly. And then on a high level, you get everyone on board. Yeah. And then you kind of steal it and make it happen. Yeah, make it happen. Because no one cares if you're using Bluetooth, NFC, or pen and paper. They just want to see what is the end result yeah. of this that you're talking about. But for small-scale projects and so on, you kind of are able to, with your approach, shield away all of these return on investment, mm. CapEx, and mm. steering committee, and all of these questions. Mm. But as you scale, when yeah. it shows to be, okay, this is good enough, yeah. we can scale this up. Yeah. Are you still able to be that? Uh, yeah, because, I mean, we have our KPIs. I, I don't start any project if I don't know what it is I'm measuring. Yeah. So uh, we, we have to measure everything. I mean, even if I say there is no, we don't care about return on investment, of course we care. But that's not the main driver, you know. So we measure everything. We measure depending on what it is, but especially within digital, in Coop, we measure, first of all, activity. How many did actually jump on board this service? Second, retention. Yeah. How many came back and used it more? And we have a goal for each service. Let's say like we want at least 80% of our members should try this and at least 40% should use it and keep using it three times a week yeah that's a kpi uh, and if we can get that kpi approved because i share those kpis i say okay this is what i'm going to do and these are the kpis what do you think they say okay then if you can achieve that that sounds great uh, and then after that on the same small scale we try okay how can we monetize this what is the value of this both in terms of maybe time saved or money that we can earn or whatever it might be. And if we still do that in small scale, and if we see that, okay, in average we can make X, then we just calculate it backwards, you know, how, how, what does that mean to our larger, you know, 3 million member scale? Yeah. And then you can get, you know, some kind of sense of what is this worth? Should we proceed? Or if we don't count money at all, maybe it's one of our long-term... Um, initiatives we should view this as long term as long as we keep the level of retention and activity 
that's a that's a win in this particular project you know it depends on the case yeah what you're saying between the lines sounds a lot like data acquisition right mm. you want yes. many users and you want high retention so you exactly. collect behavior over time and so on is that something you have been able to kind of communicate in a nice way so the the business people accept it yeah i mean we're doing that now actually right now currently there is we call it an educational program for the board of directors so i've already challenged you know uh, my colleagues and said this is the way coop will look like in 10 years yeah and to them it's like a completely alien world uh and then i had a talk with the ceo magnus i said you know this is the way we need to go he says yeah i understand i understand and i support you but it's hard for me to to point in a direction if i don't understand that direction myself you know and i again this is a trademark of a great leader someone who admits they don't get it so i said okay i, c- I can buy that he said you need to educate us What does it mean, everything you're saying? What is a platform? What is a digital economy? Why is WhatsApp valued so high? So that's actually part of an educational journey we're doing now during the spring, where I try to um, uh, educate my colleagues. What does this mean? How do you calculate? Why do we calculate this KPI here, but money here? You know, What is the difference? What is long-term? What is short-term? And so on. Cool. I think this is one of the things we will see more going forward mm. that the top management actually digs down into the details and start to understand yeah. the new world with data and yeah. so on. But um relating back to what you said earlier on in the beginning you said that everything that you work with when it comes to technology such as AI and so on yeah. the main thing you care about <laughs> is customer experience. Yeah. You start from that and then you don't really care what the technology is. Yeah. And you don't really like the opposite approach that you start with technology and then you see what mm. experience you can yeah. create. Yeah. So is there some way to measure the customer experience increase mm. on the things you provide? I mean, in the end, it's it, it's two things that, that gives you proof that it's working. Uh, number one is retention. So people keep coming back and using it. Number two, of course, uh, lifetime value. So... Th- increase in whatever it might be basket size sales number of receipts whatever so those two things will tell you if you're going down the right path or not but uh, i mean for example now i'm just uh, giving a uh, example that is maybe not related to yeah. your cases but yeah. if you have a very stupid chatbot let's say mm. and you don't get your answer that you want mm. but you have become so digital in the sense that you removed your phone number so people can't call in yeah. and then you get a lot of traffic from people trying to get mm. the answer from the yeah. question they're asking yeah then you get a lot of traffic and so on mm. but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's it a, creates yeah. value uh, in that case i mean it, uh, it's it's different from case to case but in the chatbot case that would be you know first of all you can answer it always asks you know was this the right answer or not yeah so you can say yes or no so that's one kpi The second is, you know, we have uh, built-in uh, sentiment analysis uh, libraries yep. that always checks, you know, uh, is the customer uh, annoyed, uh, not happy, uh, hungry, stressed, um, sad, you know, whatever it might be. So that's built-in, uh, those algorithms. It's an open-source library. You can just download it. Uh, and as soon as that happens, of course, if that's flagged, then you it, it will connect to a person. So you will see someone coming into the chat, a third person, a real person, and, and ask you if there's something we can do, uh, and so on. 
So it's uh, kind of the connection between humans and machines. Yeah, because in the end, you know, the reason we use AI is not, you know, to get rid of humans. It's because we want to automate everything that a machine can do better so we can move resources from something that can be done automatically to something that cannot be done automatically. And that's the human connection. Yeah. Uh, so when we remove the, the cash, uh, cashiers in the, in the stores, that's not because we want to fire every cashier. That's because we want to put the cashier in this, in, on the floor, you know, meeting with people. I mean, there is no secret to how you can win in this space. I can tell you already now. So to, the way to build the world's best store is to have 100 employees ready for every question you can have. And for each aisle in the store, you have one employee which is an expert in that category. Yeah. So olive oil. And you would even go so far to send that employee to Italy. Okay, now with the corona, maybe not. But if there were no corona, you send them to Italy and they can even live with the family that produced the olive oil and understand the names of everyone in the family and how their children are doing in school so they know everything about olive oil and who is producing that. And if you put that kind of service in the store and you ask about olive oil and you start explaining, yeah, this olive oil is good for that, and this is from a farmer in north of Italy, and blah, blah, blah. And you have that for each category. That would be the best store in the world. The best experience in the world. But we cannot do that because that would cost too much. But if we can automate, then we can put more people like that in the store and offer a better experience. So this kind of approach that you now describe is kind of going against what most business leaders, I think, envision in terms mm. of digitalization and so on. Mm. I think a lot of people think in their head that everything is autonomous. You have mm. very few people mm. and you have a very high margin, no yeah. personal expense. Yeah, nah, that doesn't work. <laughs> it will not be like that. Of all the use cases I've read about companies and business leaders that have successfully turned around the company, it was the number one reason they say turned this company around is the people. Yeah. That's always the number one reason. I've never read about the case, you know, somewhere where automation saved the company or focus on sales saved the company. It has always been people, competence, and culture. But, uh, I mean, one big thing within uh, grocery stores and, I mean, your industry is the growing e-commerce space. Yeah. So, just yesterday, my girlfriend received groceries mm. to the door. Mm. What's your thought on that versus this dream store where you have this super personal connection to the yeah. staff? So, I believe that the stores will not go away. I think that it will be more like the stores are there for a different reason. So today, if I go into the app, I can buy milk, I can buy you know cans and stuff like that, toilet paper. There is no reason for me to go to the store and see toilet paper. I, I know what toilet paper looks like. I don't, I ra much rather have, for instance, this scan and pay app that we're releasing in the, in the phone. One of the functions or features that we are planning on releasing later next, uh, this year is you can scan and pay, you know, just normally like the, the gun you have, Shop Express gun in the store. But we're also thinking about if you pick up a toilet paper, you can scan it, but then you can choose to put it in your virtual cart. So you don't have to carry it around in the store. And then the, you just the put e -commerce it back, The e-commerce cart, you know, your online cart. So the online cart is with you while you are in the store and you can choose what do you want to put in your physical cart 
like meat maybe because you want to feel and smell it maybe uh, fruits vegetables you know that's something you want to touch and, and see and feel and smell but things like you know milk things like uh, toilet paper you know cleaning products and so on there is no reason for you to carry it around in the store so and then when you when customer realize that then there is no reason to have the actual product there you just need the barcode and when we can remove such items then i think the store of the future will be more of a you know a bazaar uh, a solo hall what's it called uh, here it's more about you know a physical space where you can showcase products. showcase products and experiences meaning you know meals yeah uh, because one of the problems everyone has is what are we going to eat today you know that's a universal <laughs> general uh, question um of course for different reasons in different parts of the world but still that's a general question what are we going to eat today and i don't want to go to the store and look at a carrot i know what a fucking carrot looks like i want to see what can i do with a carrot what can i do with a carrot that also makes my 5 year old accept it you know so i think the future store will be something like uh, a set of stations where you can just taste you know meals and then you think okay this meals is good and then you say to your 5 year old can you taste it is it acceptable yeah it's acceptable okay scan the qr code and then the drone from the automated warehouse will just drive it to your door you know that's what i think the store will be for in real time so yeah yeah in real the time. toilet paper will be there before you are there yeah before you come home again or we just put it in your car if that's what you prefer you know cool but that uh, requires quite a lot of logistics yeah 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 <laughs> <laughs> that's six years <laughs> in yeah i mean that's what you i mean because one of the things i talked about at my interview with magnus when i first met him is you know i know i was there um to talk about uh, the head of digital um, position. And I said, okay, so what are you doing within digital today? Uh, and he said, yeah, we're, you know, we're doing, um, we're upgrading this e-commerce platform, Hybris. I said, okay, cool, cool, cool. Uh, and we're building... That's not really what you thought. Though. No, no, uh, uh, that's what I said. But I, I was expecting the answer that he gave me. And then he said, yeah, and we're also thinking about building this automated warehouse, you know, and all that. I said, okay, cool, cool, cool. Uh, then I was quiet for like 15 seconds and then I asked why he said uh, uh, I'm not sure what you mean but you know it's a board of director decision and blah 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 I said yeah I get that but why 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 are you doing all these things um, I'm not sure I follow I said okay I'll tell you what I told you that we don't shop at Coop right he said yeah you don't have to mention it twice <laughs> I said okay let me send a text to my wife I will tell her that what did you say it was called hybrids okay hybrids I will tell her that, you know what? Coop is using Hybris now. Maybe we should shop at Coop. Do you think she gives a shit? And then he looked at me and said, no, of course not. She doesn't know what it is. I said, yeah, exactly. So all these initiatives that you're doing, why? What are they going to lead to? Because if they don't lead in some kind of new experience, they don't mean shit. You will still be losing the market share that you're losing today. So your why for everything is the customer experience. Yeah, I want to know what is the experience that we can expect. I mean, sure, automated warehouses will increase efficiency. That's a good thing, but it's not something that will save us long term. But I mean, you mentioned that you don't need to have the toilet papers in the stores and so on, all mm. of these things, milk and etc. Only the barcodes, mm. but is that even necessary? No. But that's like a transition to 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 guide people uh, to understand 
what what we are doing because I think going too radical in a step like that will be just too much. Maybe not for the youngest persons uh, generation, but at least for my generation. Like it seems like based on historical data that you need some more toilet paper now. <laughs> yeah, but that that will for sure come. We're already uh, now one of the tasks that this head of AI uh, guy will do is to try and predict how often do you need certain products. Yeah. Uh, and we will use the chatbot as a channel for that. So after like four days, it will say, you know what? You bought milk two days ago. Maybe you should buy it. Should I add one to the cart? You know, things like yeah. that. When I took courses back at the mm. university mm. Uh, years ago, I remember one of the cool things that I learned was the concept of baskets. It comes from the physical baskets that you have in stores. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, your competitors in the US, they analyze what do people buy in the same basket. Mm. And then they look for associations and so on. Yeah. And then uh, sometimes they can, for example, they know that people buy diapers and beer together because mm. normally you maybe go out to have a drink. But if you have a child, you buy diapers and beer at the same time. So you stay at home. And then they use this knowledge to increase the price of the diaper, but they send out a rebate for the beer yeah, and they yeah. drive you in like, uh, <laughs> oh, it's a good deal. And then yeah. you end up paying as much, right? Oh. Are you doing some of that? Yeah, we actually yesterday finished a project where we analyzed uh, our product categories and customer behaviors in the stores. I don't know what the conclusions was from that project, but it, it looked cool when I looked at the, at the graphs. Uh, some kind of new technology that is used within biotech. Uh, because traditionally, and I really, I don't understand this uh, at all, but traditionally when you analyze baskets, you do it in a two-dimension uh, using, uh, you know, mosaic data and stuff like that, like age groups and so on. But there is a new way of doing it coming from the biotech industry uh, when they sequence DNA, where you can group people by the, the things you just explained now, you know, associations, uh, what is it they have in their baskets, which products are related, not through hierarchy, but through behavior, customer behavior, uh, what products are must-haves, what products do not seem very important, but they are a driver, you know, for other products and stuff like that. And this is something traditionally, even though you had it in school, the industry does not work like that at all today. Not at all. Uh, in the US, they've gone a lot farther uh, in that aspect, but here in Sweden, to my knowledge, the, the analytics is still very basic. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, since that time in school, I haven't seen it yeah. yet. Yeah. So that's why one of the things I was excited to meet you and talk about, yeah. because you're in that industry. Yeah. We released that two days ago, that project, uh, the report. I can send you the graphs. I'm sure you will understand much more than I will. Cool. I would love to yeah. see the graph. Yeah. And... Um, Given all your work with the digitalization in general and AI in particular, mm. what would you say have been some of the main challenges that you have faced? Egos. So there is always someone who doesn't want change, always. And uh, they feel like now I'm stepping on their territory. Because even though digital is considered to be a new business area or unit within an organization, it's like electricity. It will affect all. So people get scared when they realize that, oh shit, they were supposed to do digital, which in their world is apps, and now they're interfering with my responsibilities, with my KPIs, 
with your data. Yeah, with my data. And uh, that's when, you know, this misalignment in understanding what is digital. Digital is not a unit that will spit out an app. It's like electricity. It, it runs through the whole company. So it's like a, an enabler for, for new kind of business developments that you don't have the possibility to do today. At least if you want a digital butterfly effect. Yeah, if you want, if you want to do it correctly. Yeah, uh, because in a lot of companies you see the chief digital officers working with apps. And um, what would be your top three pieces of advice for someone listening to this podcast who thinks, I want to do something like you have done? Yeah. Number one, don't be afraid. So uh, that that ties into don't take things too serious, you know, uh, take intelligent risks, you know, all that. That's the number one. Uh, because as I, as I said, you know, no one will die if you steal the data and make something of it, you know, and stuff like that. Maybe you shouldn't steal the data, but I don't know. I'll leave that to, <laughs> to the person listening. But, you know, don't be afraid. Don't take things too serious. This is not North Korea, you know. That's number one. Number two is you need to have, I think it's very helpful if you understand the basics of technology uh, because that's one of the the things I am lucky with, you know. I have this tech knowledge at the base of everything which helps me speak with confidence. Yeah. I can claim that, you know, we can do this because I know it can be done. Maybe... Yeah. Maybe not by us, because we don't have the competence, but I know somewhere in the world it can be done. Yeah. Uh, so that's number two. And number three, surround yourself with people much smarter than you. Much, much smarter. There is a, I think it's a Chinese saying or an Indian saying, I don't remember, but it says something like, it's better to be the tail of a lion than the head of a mouse. Yeah. So you have to always strive for that. So that's what I would say. Good. And um, we are coming towards the end now. And I'm going to ask the question because I know that when you started at Coop, you said boldly, as always, oh, oh, okay. Oh, oh. I, either we, as in Coop, becomes the best in the world or I will get fired. Mm? I don't like to lay around in the fish, you know, for five years doing nothing. Uh, either success or I get fired. And is it like five months in now? Yeah. Do you feel that you are going to get fired or no, is it going well? Not yet. It's going well right now. <laughs> cool. And um, the final question, as always, mm. who are two guests that you would like me to invite to this podcast and why? So one is, I think, my former boss, uh, Jari Virtanen, who is the CTO for Stenaline, a CTO being transformational officer. So he's not so technical, actually not at all. So I think to your listeners, it would be very fun to hear, you know, what digitalization and AI means from someone that knows nothing about it. But is working with it. But was but is working with it and leading a whole company, you know, to to uh, to uh, adapt it, you know, and embrace it. Yeah, I mean, isn't Stena kind of the most it AI is. shipping company in the world? Yeah, it's yeah. the only shipping company in the world that has their own head of AI. Yeah. So, I mean, and this is amazing considering the person leading it knows nothing about technology. Nothing. Not yeah. even how to tweet. <laughs> so what kind of leadership skills do you need for that? You know, I think that would be interesting. 
yeah. for your listeners to understand. Because a big part of my success, you know, understanding people and understanding how to lead them and inspire them, you know, to do great things. Yeah. And he will provide that even more, you know, being not having any technical background. Yeah. And then the second one would be, I would say, Annika Elfström, who is the CIO of Lindex. Yep. Uh, also one of the persons that helped me a lot during my time at Stenaline. Uh, very positive, very eager, understands technology, but never speaks it. And is, she is in a very traditional industry, fashion, you know. Uh, but at the same time, they're seeing, you know, disruption from players like Naked, you know, and, and uh, stuff like that. And uh, also being a woman, you know, a very successful one, uh, yeah. having that point of view, I think, would be very, very interesting. Cool. Two very great suggestions. Yeah. I will see so. what I can do if they want to talk to me. Of course they will. Just let me know if they don't. I have them both on WhatsApp. I will spank <laughs> their asses off if they don't. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, nice ending. So... <laughs> 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 you can have this in the blooper part you know? <laughs> yeah. so thank you very much for joining the talk about ai podcast thank you for t having me and uh, hope that uh, i will see you still in the same position in five years so you have succeeded yeah i hope so i hope so definitely thank you so much thank you Thank you for listening to the Talk About AI podcast. If you have any feedback on how the podcast can be improved or suggestions for future speakers, please don't hesitate to reach out. The contact information can be found on talkaboutai.com. Tune in again in exactly one week for the next episode. Until then, have a nice time.